From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. State Department Inspector General Steve Linick will leave his job next month after President Trump removed him Friday. The chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, Elliot Engel, and the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, say they'll investigate Linick's removal. Engel and Menendez are giving the White House, the State Department, and the IG office until Friday to give them all documents about Linick's removal. Two councils will oversee transition planning and activities between now and the presidential election, November 3rd. Federal Transition Coordinator Mary Gibbard and Acting Deputy Director for Management Mike Regas will chair the Agency Transition Directors Council. GovExec reports White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows will chair the White House Transition Coordinating Council. Eighteen sailors assigned to the USS Theodore Roosevelt are in quarantine tonight in Guam. They were in contact with five sailors on the ship who tested positive for COVID-19 after they spent two weeks in isolation, tested negative at least twice while ashore, and then returned to duty. USNI News reports the sailors that tested positive after they reported back to the Roosevelt are in quarantine too. The Defense Business Board says the Pentagon's chief management officer role is, quote, mostly ineffective. The board has recommendations for replacing the Defense Department's number three position. Major General Arnold Panaro, U.S. Marine Corps, retired as CEO of the Panaro Group. He's a member of the Defense Business Board. Arnie, thanks very much for coming on the program. What did you look at, you and your colleagues on the Defense Business Board, regarding the job, the role, the portfolio of the CMO? Well, Francis, thank you very much for this opportunity. And let me say at the outset, I am obviously not speaking for the Department of Defense or representing the Department of Defense. And our assessment was based on a requirement from the Congress to look at the statutory functions of the chief management officer since its inception. And so we looked at the office. We are not doing a report card on an individual or on uh, any administration. We really looked at what Congress had set it up to do in 2008 and enhance it again in 2018 to focus on major business transformation in the Department of Defense. And they gave us six areas they wanted us to look at to determine whether it was being effective or not. And that's what we did. What, what did you find in each of those areas, General? Well, we found basically the overall summary was that it was uh, mostly ineffective in performing its statutory functions of major business transformation. And a lot of people confuse cost-cutting with business transformation. So the department does cost-cutting drills all the time, and they're very good at that. That does not have anything to do with the statutory requirement for the Office of the Chief Management Officer, which is to focus on the business transformation, fundamentally changing the processes, the practices, the procedures, um, the IT structure, so there can be long-term improvements in efficiencies and effectiveness. So we looked at the six areas uh, that would give us the ability to determine whether or not they were being effective in that respect. The major complaints that I've heard over the years about the potential for effectiveness of the CMO office primarily revolve around the autonomy, the juice that that position has. Is that what the Defense Business Board found as well, that there were questions about the the portfolio that the office was given and the the basically the power that the CMO office had to enforce what it believed it needed to get done across the department? 
Francis, you've kind of hit the bullseye with that question. If you look at the Department of Defense, one of the most effective and efficient uh, of all our government departments without question, uh, if you look at what happened in Goldwater Nichols in 86, we had to improve the operational chain of command, making it crystal clear from an operational standpoint who was in charge. Uh, now, the Congress tried, starting in 2008, to clarify the management chain of command, but what they did is they created an organization that ended up being outside the normal decision battle rhythms, time-tested in the Department of Defense. I call it the hot water line. The hot water line runs from the Secretary of Defense to the Deputy Secretary of Defense to all the senior officials down the chain. The CMO was set up sort of outside of that and on what I call the cold water line, and it was never set up for success. And frankly, you've got to be realistic in the, in the Department of Defense. You had existing uh, offices that performed these functions, and to think that somehow you could create this sidebar to do that just was not realistic. I was one of the biggest advocates in 2008, and then increasing in its enhancement in 2018, pushing very hard for this position. But after we had interviewed over 90 people, looked at all the studies and analyses that had been done in the last 20 years, stacked up about six feet high, um, we came to the conclusion it just was not effective, you know, in business transformation. The, it was not as effective as the chief management officers in the military departments because they were set up within the normal decision structure. The culture of the Pentagon was such it was never going to be accepted. It doesn't follow best business practices that work in the outside world. And there's a lot of confusion and overlap between what the CMO's responsibilities were, the deputy secretary of defense, principal staff assistants like the undersecretary for acquisition uh, and things of that nature. So we just came to the conclusion that the position ought to be disestablished and the Secretary of Defense ought to look at three alternatives that we thought had a chance of being more successful uh, than the status quo. And you anticipated where I wanted to go next, General. We have about a minute left. Now that you've been converted, what have you been converted to? What would make more sense? What would get that, that, those responsibilities back up to that hot water line? What I've been converted to is we fundamentally got to change the focus in business transformation to be able to be better, faster, cheaper than China. And to do that, you're going to have to put it within one of three options, either a person solely focused on business transformation. The CMO office right now has got huge additional duties that have nothing to do with business transformation, and they divert the focus. Or you've got to have a deputy secretary of defense that's just totally focused on internal management, or you can use the existing decision structure and enhance the current Deputy Secretary of Defense to be able to drive those kind of reforms with additional capabilities in the principal staff assistants like the cost assessment, the comptroller, the joint staff, the J-8, uh, and activities like that. And so we think we've given the Secretary of Defense, who, by the way, is one of the most aggressive when it comes to reform, so he deserves a better organizational structure to implement his priorities. General Pranaro, thanks very much for your insights. Great to see you, Arnie. Anytime, Francis. Up next, the telework of the future at the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a preview of a reopened Pentagon. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Defense Department's issued new remote devices, increased call volume capacity, and expanded its bandwidth in response to the coronavirus. Once the building opens again, employees could see increased telework continue at the agency. Susanna Bloom is senior fellow and director of the defense program at the Center for a New American Security and former deputy chief of staff for programs and plans to the deputy secretary of defense. Susanna, welcome. Thanks for coming on again. It's good to see you. You asked what I think is the million dollar question in a piece that you wrote recently in Defense One, and I think it's, I don't know if you mean it as a rhetorical question or not. You write, why can't this work be done remotely? Why does anyone need to go to the Pentagon to work with unclassified data in this age of readily available cloud storage. Is there an answer to that or did you mean it as a rhetorical question, Susanna? Uh, well, I think there is an answer to that question, Francis. I think that, uh, you know, there are very real both cultural and technological barriers to increased uh, telework for DOD employees. Um, you know, the department in, in recent weeks has been moving relatively quickly in that direction, but they can't overcome decades of underinvestment and technological refresh uh, overnight. What does that what does that catch up look like? Where are the areas that it makes the most sense to you? not from a technological perspective, but from an operational tactical perspective to make those investments. Well, I think what we've come to understand as a result of this pandemic is that, um, you know, the ability to work remote is a real kind of continuity of government challenge and, and that there are real operational impacts. It's not just like a nice perk to have in the workplace. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that most urgently, uh, you know, the department needs to have a serious look at unclassified VTC capabilities that people can use from from their homes. Um, you know, increase dramatically its you know conference call bandwidth. I think it's starting to do that already. But um, you know, people you know need these. You know, I call them modern technologies, but really they're they're you know it's not like we're on the cutting edge here. Uh, you know, they just need to proliferate throughout the department widely so that people can do their jobs under these circumstances. The cultural piece of this is the most fascinating to me, Susanna, because you point out the department already knows how to do this. You're right. The irony here is the military's demonstrated some incredible feats of remote work in operational contexts. The Air Force recently moved the command center for its Middle East air operations from Qatar to South Carolina. So it, it, this is almost entirely cultural then, isn't it, Susanna? I, I think in a in a lot of cases it is. Um, you know, the the Pentagon, it will surprise no one, is a pretty old school workplace, um, and there definitely is an attitude in a lot of different parts of the bureaucracy that if you're not physically present in the office, you know, you must not be working, or clearly you're not working. And I think that. Um, you know, not just DOD, but across uh, employers where people right now who are lucky enough to be able to do their jobs remotely, you're seeing tremendous productivity continue uh, in those kinds of roles. And so I think that, you know, hopefully one very small silver lining of this very serious crisis could be that this is the, the push that the department needs to overcome uh, it's cultural barriers to increase remote working. Where, where do you see the resources coming from in a time? We're hearing all kinds of issues about budgets over the next couple of years, especially, but also out years. What does that look like in your perspective? What would, you, what would be the markers to indicate to you that uh, Pentagon leadership is serious about this transition or, or this evolution? So that's a that is a that is the million dollar question, uh, right? I think that you know most of us are in agreement that DoD is heading for a contraction. Uh, you know it's not going to escape 
um, the consequences of the of the you know economic aspects of this crisis. So, you know how quickly that happens is a separate question. Uh, and so, where does the money come from? I think what I would look for are is a real commitment out of the Department of Defense for um, technology refresh rates that are more akin to what you see in the private sector. Um, you know that in and of itself, I think, would go a really long way to making sure that people have the tools that they need to be able to work remotely. How do you justify that? And no, no aspersions cast on any of the individual pieces inside the department. But how do you go about? How do you justify in a budget context speeding up refresh, for example, for the fourth estate when there are needs at the tip of the spear? This has been the ongoing debate for decades, as you well know, inside the department. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any expenditure in the fourth estate is so difficult to justify when there are, you know, absolutely real operational needs. However, you know, as I mentioned, I think that that what we've seen here is that this ability and this um, need to have these technologies available to workers throughout the defense enterprise is a continuity of government issue. Uh, you know, it's it's not just a perk right? Um, and so I think we need to treat it that way and invest appropriately. Does, is there a case to be made kind of the flip side of what I just suggested? Sometimes, especially when it comes to information technology and government, the argument is well, we can't afford not to do this. Is there an argument to be made in that direction in this case, Susanna? Well, I mean, yes, I think there is. I think that, um, you know, it's, it is it's inappropriate that it's it's difficult to ask uh, people to do the most serious work that faces this nation in terms of keeping us safe on operating systems that were out of date five years ago. And and that's, you know, consistently the practice. Right. Uh, and so at the beginning of this crisis, when you had people sent out of the building and attempting to get through their workday just using Blackberries because they didn't have the VPN support uh, and, you know, none of the kind of commercially available video conferencing services were, uh, you know, approved from a security perspective, even for unclassified conversations are still struggling with that. You know, I think that that's a real wake up call in this space. Susanna Bloom, thanks very much as always. Great to have you. Thanks, Francis. It's good to be here. Up next, the United States' reliance on China and what it means after the pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. can tidy up its economic ties. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Boards put a pause on changes to the international fund, the I-Fund, because of concerns about investing in Chinese corporations. They're not the only ones taking another look at the United States' ties to China. Ron Marks is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies, former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate majority leaders. Ron, thanks for coming on the program. This is the question that people are starting to ask. What's the relationship with China look like economically, research-wise, and so on after this pandemic ends or even still in the middle of it, Ron? Well, we are certainly in a 21st century version of a Cold War. And now I know people don't like to use that word because that implies a military conflict. It certainly implied a very difficult challenge for 50 years with the Soviet Union. But in fact, what you've now seen, um, and I think the COVID virus has limited out fairly well, you're dealing with China Inc. 
this is a country that is looking uh, strictly for its uh, own version of the world in terms of dominance, uh, in terms of military power, in terms of economic power. Uh, and they've let economic power uh, really drive this process because uh, they believe if they have this, they can obtain the other things more easily. Uh, as a consequence of that, uh, they have been very active with us and have engaged us over the years. And we've been willing to accept, uh, well, let's see, they've got about a trillion dollars worth of our debt. Uh, we buy about 80% of our rare earth from them, uh, which matters to our technology. Uh, they're an $800 billion trade partner. Uh, so we are deeply hooked in with them, as well as their own uh, ideas behind, uh, behind their outreach to research institutes and universities. Uh, as I recall, it's the Thousand Talent Program uh, that they've engaged in as a way of attempting to gain as much technology as they can, as quickly as they can, bring back people who've been educated in the West. None of this would be bad in and of itself if it weren't such a one-way trip for essentially what they're looking to do, which is to push the United States out of the way and assert themselves uh, in terms of dominance in the mid-21st century uh, as the number one nation in the world. Uh, and we seem to so far uh, be uh, supplying them uh, that, uh, that uh, weaponry and uh, that information to do it. And I think now is the time, uh, if we haven't been thinking about it before, to really start thinking about a universal policy as to how we deal with them going forward. It strikes me that this is not just an issue for the United States government either. It's, a, it's a, an issue for the United States private sector because the government didn't decide to move manufacturing of PPE to China. The government didn't decide that manufacturing antibiotics and so on or buying them and reselling them uh, under American brand names was uh, the move to make. Those decisions were taken by private sector companies. What can the government do and what should it do to drive incentives to change that dynamic, Ron? Well, I think the first incentive, of course, obviously, beside tax and tariff, uh, is a gentle public reminder, jawboning, we used to call it, by the president or by senior officials, uh, that whatever uh, illusion they are under, that they are internationalists, and I'll especially point to Silicon Valley, uh, they're paying their taxes here. They're employing people here. Uh, this is the United States that they're depending upon uh, for their workforce, uh, and for their infrastructure support. Uh, just tossing jobs overseas at this point uh, is not enough, and there needs to be a penalty for that. And I think that's something the U.S. government needs to think about. There can be positive carrots in the sense of offering them additional funds for staying here, but there sure certainly should be some form of a negative penalty uh, for shifting jobs and uh, as well as uh, rather blatantly shifting technologies overseas. What are the implications of this from a national security perspective, but particularly an intelligence perspective, your experience, Ron? Well, we're going to have to get involved with a game that we haven't really played very well, uh, and that's economic uh, intelligence as well as economic policy. Uh, I think we've been so big for so long. Look, we're still a $22 trillion economy. We're still about 20-some-odd percent of the world's gross national product. Uh, we're big. And, and I think we've relied on being big for too long because we didn't really have any near-peer competitors of any kind. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, China is probably about half of our size right now, if you, even if you squint at the numbers a little bit. Uh, they're certainly a rising military power in terms of their overall spending. They're number two in the world. So what, what you really got right now is a situation where we need to clean up our act a little bit. Um, we haven't had a national economic policy as such. We have informally. We've done tariffs. We've, you know, given tax breaks to 
uh, certain industries uh, where we're favoring overseas uh, uh, overseas sales, whether it's agricultural or or you know Boeing, for example, for jets, et cetera. Uh, economic intelligence has been very spotty, but where it has been done, and I, I grew up in some of that, it actually been done fairly well. But again, the connection, the idea, the thought of it as a central part of U.S. foreign policy is something that by and large has not happened. Uh, from my economist friends, they would say it's because you got a bunch of poli-sci guys out there who are doing, uh, who are doing the policy. Uh, but in reality, the, the economic portion has not been paid attention to, and frankly, uh, it needs to be, and it needs to be done at the highest levels. 30 seconds, Ron. What do you watch moving forward? What decisions or what people or what movements do you watch? Well, it, this clearly has to come out of the White House. I, I, I know everybody says that all the time, but the fact of the matter is whoever controls the money and whoever controls the program rules the roost. Uh, there are a lot of different efforts, whether it's looking at CFIUS uh, from the commerce side, whether it's looking at Justice Department, uh, in terms of economic espionage, uh, which, by the way, is is rampant at this point. Ninety percent of economic espionage cases are uh, looked at by the Bureau are Chinese. Uh, we need to think carefully uh, in terms of our own uh, export policies. Ron Marks, thanks very much, as always. You're welcome, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.